Welcome, Eric Gallegos, to the summit on guardianship. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be doing what you're doing now? Absolutely. Let, let me start with a quote from Marcus Aurelius. That's my favorite quote. Marcus Aurelius said that everything you hear is opinion and not fact. Everything you see is perspective, not the truth. And the reason I start with that, so everything I say, you know, comes from my perspective. I grew up here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, born and raised. My parents were from uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico, a little town north of here. Um, basically, my father was a hard worker, engineer. My mother was a dental hygienist. Eventually, my father uh, started his own engineering firm and ended up being a multidiscipline firm, did a lot of uh, the Star Wars, Reagan Star Wars type uh, facilities for technologies. Okay. Um, I went to school here, public school, went on to UNM, uh, got my undergrad degree in uh, finance, got a graduate degree in international management. I worked for my father through most of uh, high school and uh, college. And uh, of course I was training to be an engineer. Um, however, my father was having difficulty tracking jobs in the finance department, in the accounting departments, because uh, the accountants just didn't understand engineering. So he figured it was easier to take me from engineering and teach me accounting than vice versa. And that's how I got into business. I went on to stay, I switched my degree from engineering to business at, at UNM and uh, ended up getting my degrees in finance and ultimately in international management. And I stayed in that field. I was looking for a different job before I became a broker, retail broker, I actually was reading an article about Nicholas Brady doing the Brady bonds. Basically, they were bonds, US government uh, backed uh, bailout Mexico, one of the times they uh, failed. And I called him up. By the way, Nicholas Brady was a secretary of treasury, former. But anyway, uh, so I tracked him down, got his cell phone, called him up, said I wanted to uh, be involved in that. And he told me to go get my series seven. So I did, you know, eventually I ended up just staying in New Mexico. Uh, the Brady bonds were all sold in and done by the time I got through training and got my series seven, just stayed in the investment business. Um, early on, I learned Wall Street was not there for individuals to make money. Wall Street was there for the elephants of Wall Street to make money off the individuals. I learned that within about six months. And at that time, I had decided that I no longer believed in anything my firm was telling me. Uh, I didn't like to uh, buy off their suggested lists and uh, started uh, looking at uh, individuals uh, and what their needs were. And that's pretty much what I do continually to this day. You know, everyone's different, like a, like a flower or a snowflake. Everyone has their own <clears throat> and uh, uh, goals and aspirations in life. And I think everyone should be treated that way. 
unfortunately, nowadays, everything is asset allocation models. They just want to fit you in either like the child's block, whether it's a triangle, hole, square hole, round hole, and they want you to fit one of those. They don't really care about individual needs. Could you go back, Eric, and explain what a Series 7 is? Sure. Series 7 is a general securities license. It allows us uh, to buy and sell stocks, bonds, mutual funds, options, um, not futures. That's a different entity and commodities and such or currencies. Um, but the general, uh, oh, and, and uh, uh, variable uh, securities, you know, annuities and such, even though that, a lot of those require an insurance license in addition to the Series 7. Uh, depends on which ones. Uh, some you just need the insurance license, some you need the general securities license. And uh, basically, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of my philosophy and where I came from and how I got into the finance business, kind of by accident, I'd say. And would you say that your family's attitudes toward money can contributed to where you are now and how you look at things? Oh, very much so. Um, my father was the gambler. He was uh, fearless. He, you know, he, he worked for engineering firms for a long time. Um, eventually, he broke out on his own when people advised him not to. You could equate him to a, a World Series poker player. He would go all in more after my mother, I'd say. Probably not why I'm not speaking to you from my yacht, right? You know, the difference between uh, me and my father. Safety. Um, and this, yes, I like a little bit of more of a safety net, especially once I had a family and kids. I didn't want them to have everything and then, you know, barely having anything for a while, especially nowadays with all the phones and everything that kids must have nowadays. You got to kind of uh, take a more moderate course. But the changes in the industry really affect individual investors based on age. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, well, absolutely. In, in the typical models, um, the allocation models, from our perspective in the finance world, they more you need to be in safety, income, fixed income type products, and less in equities because they're supposedly more volatile, okay? Uh, however, if you look at the 10-year treasury bond, it's paying 0.63%. Yes, point, not even 1%. Um, you look at inflation rates now. The official inflation rates are somewhere between 1% and 3% in a given year. However, I'll give you an example. I have a 2006 Dodge Dually. Laramie, all the bells and whistles when I bought it. About $40,000 in 2006. That same truck today is around $80,000. Well, if you look at the rule of 72, now that's how you decide how long it takes you to double your money at a given interest rate. But you could also plug in the years and back out the interest rate, or you can put in the interest rate and it'll tell you how many years, either way. Well, you take the rule of 72 for 14 years, that's a five per, over a 5% inflation rate. To me, that's more real. 
of what we're really experiencing is an inflation rate, not, not whatever formula the government gives us. Therefore, how in the world can you be in mostly fixed income when the 10-year treasury is at 0.63% when inflation rates really about 5% every single year? And so when you look at investments for seniors, basically, and if you look at our continuing ad, this is what it really says about seniors that they have very short time horizons. They have very high liquidity needs because things happen, they have to go to the hospital or what have you. Um, and they can't take a lot of risks. And, and basically, I, I'm not kidding. One, one, one uh, answer was that seniors were a lose-lose situation. And I just found that baffling, that mentality of an industry. Could you explain people, that? Could you explain what that means that you're going to oh. lose if you take care of a senior account? Um, because they're they're you can't properly you if you buy them just bonds, they're not going to be able to keep up with their their uh, lifestyle. If you put them in equities, you could be liable because you're taking on too much risk for the client, and therefore you know that it. It kind of uh, says that they're they're a lose lose proposition, almost like encouraging brokers to stay away from them. When you look at our business, most of the money is held by people over sixty years old. You know that's just a fact, and it's simply because of this. Yes, when they're younger, twenty five, say they're making money. They're not making as much as say a forty. 40 year old, but they're spending everything, everything they have, probably even more than they have. They're probably spending 110% of their income. How much, money would, how much money would they actually need? Let's say they needed uh, to take $50,000 out of an account that uh, every year in addition to their social security in order to have a comfortable lifestyle. How much money with the current requirements that they need to have everything liquid, how much money would they actually have to have to be able to take $50,000 out to live on? Well, that you have a lot of factors we have to put in. How old are they? How old are they when they retire? So we can look at the actuary tables and say, how long are they expected to live? And another thing you got to look at too is that, uh, um, where are their assets now? Are they already in the market? Are they in, in uh, real estate? Are they, they in uh, other types of uh, illiquid investments? You know, all those kind of things uh, you got to look at. But let's, let's take it like this. The typical retirement age, um, let's say 65, even though it's higher now, but just, you know, a lot of people can choose to, retire at 65, you're going to have to figure at least 20 years, at least, I'd say 25 years, even though you're way beyond the actuarial tables, but just in case, you never know. And I'd say a minimum, an absolute minimum would be about a million dollars in, in liquid assets that you can, that could be an investment. Is That'd that one minimum. person or two people? 
one person. Two people, I would say it needs to be uh, about a married couple, say, or two people living in the same house. About one and a quarter million, I would get. I would say is a rough estimate of a minimum they need. And if you look at it, number one, you look at the four percent rule, right? Where that would take out four hundred thousand dollars in ten years. Okay. Could you explain well, the four percent rule? Yeah, the four percent rule is the kind of uh, standard rule of thumb uh, amount you need to take out every year of your assets to live comfortably. So whatever that 4% needs to be would be your 50,000 or what have you. And to, so that, so that your nest egg will last through your lifetime, you know, and that's of course, assuming that you don't want to leave anything to any heirs or what have you. Um, but if you look at the 4% rule, it doesn't really factor in inflation. And, and like the example I gave on my truck, the 5%, you could really go and look at that at food. I have a family of five. I have three kids. They're all teenagers now. So food is becoming a bigger portion of our uh, spending. Uh, they eat amazing amounts in teenage years. But I look at the same way, you know, where a, a, a a box of mixed nuts, it's $15 now. Five years ago, it was nine. Uh, 10 years ago, it was like $6. So, you know, that's the, the 5% pretty much is applying to food also, most food. You know, the only thing recently that's come down is, is oil. But, you know, if I was a betting man, I'd say we're not staying very low for very long. You know, a year or two longer, maybe um, four dollar four dollar uh, gallon gasolines within the next three years. I'm I'm I could almost say that with a hundred percent certainty, in my opinion. Uh, if not within three, within five for sure, which is triple what it's at now, or double the the high rates around town. Okay, uh, so you, you got to factor in the five percent inflation. So really, you're taking 9% out a year. Think about it that way. You're taking 9% out a year because inflation is a tax that's not a tax, say. It is a tax. It's a hidden tax. And at 5%, that's huge, okay? That's a huge amount. So that 4% rule may or may not work. And if it's going to work, you got to have a bigger nest egg for it to for it to really pan out because the account really needs to grow as they're drawing it out. You can't magically stop and put it in, in the real world. You can't magically stop, put it all in cash and just draw off of it. Cause every year, if you drew not one penny out of there, you lost 5% most years, you know? And so to me, one and a quarter million would be the minimum to try to make that $50,000 a year. And I'm saying $50,000 this year and next year is going to be a little bit more 52,000. And the next year has got to be a little bit more to keep up with the cost of living. You know, another example that's way beyond the official 
the official inflation rate, which right now is about one or 2% actually, is your property taxes. Property taxes here in Brindleo County go up 3% a year, no matter what. That's, that's the factor they go up. And every single year they go up 3%. Well, you know, at a minimum, you got to look at inflation is at least three. So when you're looking at the nest egg, you got to account for the inflation, the, the, the diminishing purchasing power of the dollar versus what you're drawing out. So you're not going to draw a straight 50,000. Those, those, those uh, models are, are flawed, I'd say. Okay, can we, uh, can we look at how people change in their decision-making as they get older? They, do they want to have, they want to have more security because people have told them they need more security? Is that basically what happens? Th that's, th that's the theory. However, in my experience, from my perspective, from my clients, how they invested when they were 50s, how we're continuing today. And, and they're all comfortable with that. Um, now, my client base is not the starting out people. And we tend to have wealthier investors with me. So with that, they're gen generally become, uh, they're more sophisticated investors. They, they, they understand the market better and we take what being diversified and uh, mostly blue chip type companies that pay dividends is not uh, taking more risk at all. And that's the smart way to invest. Um, but, uh, Generally, people do get more conservative or they're told to. I don't know if they really, in my experience, most people really don't if they're sophisticated investors. We've been working together on finance since the 1990s. And so I'm familiar with this, but other people need to understand that there seem to be two ways of telling people to invest. In one way, they're actually going to lose money, and in the other, they stand a chance of surviving. It's just my my way of seeing it. Does that seem reasonable? Absolutely. In my opinion, the models, unless someone accumulates a lot of money, those models just are not going to work for the for the average person. And, you know, when we say a million dollars saved up over a lifetime, nowadays, that's not that much. You know, when I started out, a million dollars was a lot of money. I started in this business in 1995. That was a lot of money. You know, a million used to be a million. Now it's, you know, not that much. I mean, people, people live in homes that are close to that. That average average uh, people are living in homes that are three quarter of a million dollars or or more, you know. So it's certainly a, a little bit different world. But uh, yes, you know, uh, the industry looks at at uh, individuals as they get older. It lumps them all together. That their cognitive capabilities get diminished over time, and we, as brokers, are supposed to look at all these warning signs and 
report them immediately to compliance. People and get forgetful or, or, or uh, you know, they, they, they have trouble uh, remembering uh, certain things. I mean, who, who of us here hasn't lost our keys in, in a panic trying to go somewhere trying to find them? I just had them in my hand. Where are they? You know, I don't think my cognitive abilities are going down. I think I was distracted, you know. I was trying to get three kids in a car and go take them to school or something. But, uh, you know, the, the industry looks at that, that uh, their abilities to make decisions goes down. Now, some people do. But generally, I don't see that until they're considerably older. And, and I, have, I have an 80-year-old client here as sharp as a tack. This guy, he will quote Shakespeare to you. He's a very learned man. You know, he went to MIT. He, he was a partner at one of the major accounting firms. That, uh, he's a very sharp man. And, and he, he invests similar to, to uh, younger people because he's a sophisticated investor and, and he makes very good decisions. He takes my advice. He makes his own decisions. I don't see any uh, diminished capacity in his mental ability. I don't care what they say on the charts. I don't care how many graphs they want to show my brain and show how little the activity it is. I don't care. You know, what, whatever that's measuring, I don't believe it's people's intelligence or ability to make decisions or cognitive abilities whatsoever okay, however now how, how private are the records that you're keeping because you're talking about reporting activity if you think there's something suspicious so who, you're to reporting the, to your compliance department who are you reporting well, it to i personally haven't reported on anybody but I'm, we're supposed to and as for privacy um in this industry we're allowed, we're expected to, uh, to flag things to compliance and, and a myriad of things with, with, with the elder people, with, with any people, any cognitive uh, disabilities that you, you witness uh, that you're supposed to uh, report or, or note for the accounts nowadays. Uh, we are so regulated. I, I mean, if I wanted to be less regulated, I could work for a nuclear weapons company. Uh, I'd probably be less regulated than I am here, but in uh, money and money laundering things, you know, people putting money in accounts and taking them right out. And to me, it's like that doesn't say they're money laundering. They're they're moving money around. Well, you move it here, you intended to use it. You found a property they want to buy. Maybe they're buying a boat for Pete's sakes. You know, it's uh, it's 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 kind of uh, comical how we're supposed to be the watchdogs. And it's not just brokers. It's the, the, anywhere you have money, banks the same way, insurance companies the same way. They're all uh, basically, uh, uh, how do I say? Well, I'll just say it. Like little rats out there waiting to, to tattle on whatever they see. And I, I, I refuse to do that. I have a, to me, I believe I have a, relationship with an investor and I understand them you know I if they were a bad seed I would probably have terminated the relationship a long time ago I don't see it as my job to be a, a policeman or a law enforcement I don't see that I, I, I disagree with that but that's where the industry's going 
Okay, when you talk about um, your relationship with the investor, could you talk a little bit about the difference between a management fee and a commission for selling or buying a particular security or When they were trying to put in the what they called the fiduciary rule over the last couple of years, they kind of abandoned it. Now we're going to the, the industry is going a little bit different direction. But uh, I don't want to comment on because they don't even have it nailed down yet. So let, let's see what they come up with. But under the fiduciary rule, basically they were trying to say that transactional uh, commissions, which means you charge a commission every time you buy or sell uh, versus fee base, which means they just charge you, a, you know, two, 3% a year uh, and you don't pay transactional commissions. You just pay two, 3% on your assets every single year. Um, and basically under the fiduciary rule, the whole thing was, what was coming about was they were saying that say a broker, uh, let me back off, say a, a broker puts you in a mutual fund that has a front end load. Could you explain okay, that? Say front end load means, uh, you'll pay to buy that fund one time. Okay. And I think that highest rate on some of these funds will be six and three quarter percent. So you go in there and you pay six and three quarter percent. Um, that's if you had like $50,000, less than $50,000. Okay. Um, you go and pay that amount one time. And they thought they, under the fiduciary rule, their argument was that that was uh, horrendous to do to someone's retirement because you'd hit them with a six and three quarter one time and uh, it would diminish their back end of, of what their potential earnings were. So their solution was to put them in fee-based accounts, okay? And the fee-based accounts, you know, they'll charge anywhere from say one and a half to Three percent is reasonable. I've seen things as high as five, which I don't. Unless you're a hedge fund, that's super high. But let's just say the average two percent. Okay, the, they said you're better off it. Say you're 25 year old and you put that money and you got charged six and three quarter one time. On the fee base, you're going to pay two percent a year every year. So say you retire at 65, 40 years later. Well, what's two, two, two times 40? That's like 80% what they charge, 2% every single year. And that's compounding. That's huge. They, they want to say that's better for the client than paying the six and three quarter once. Me personally, I don't really like mutual funds. They have their place. But in my opinion, they're way better off paying the six and three quarter one time versus 2% every single year. You know, this is not talking about the 12B1 fees, which they all have. That's you about explain, another. You need, to, you need to explain those, I think, as well. The 12B1 fees are the fees the, the mutual fund charges to maintain the account. I mean, they have to pay their, their, uh, <clears throat> their fund advisors and they have to pay trading and they have to, you know, there's administrative costs related to running the mutual fund. Uh, they have, you know, they have uh, analysts and and uh, and uh, and such, and all those people need to be paid. I mean, you know, no one's expected to work for free, not in this industry or any other. 
And so generally the, the front end load funds, the reputable ones have relatively low 12B1 fees. Um, they'll be about, you know, seven, eight tenths of a percent, sometimes as low as half a percent every year. Other funds will charge up to 2% 12B1 fees a year. You know, a lot of the no loads will have a higher 12B1 fees, okay. which is a hidden fee you do not see. <laughs> yeah, I hate those. Can we um, apply this now to someone who is perhaps uh, having a fairly large nest egg and has been placed under commercial guardianship? So now you have operating the increase in real estate taxes, which comes every year, a management fee for managing the account, and the all the additional expenses plus a 4% uh, withdrawal from whatever the nest egg was. Let's say they've got maybe $2 million and then there's 5% every year for inflation. That's actual inflation. And so when you start adding those up and you've got a couple of million dollars, how fast does that go with medical fees and such? Yeah, well, once you enter the guardianship and their fees and who they pay, yeah, you throw all that out the window. You can't even use the, as flawed as it is, the 4% rule in inflation because you have a whole nother set of, of uh, expenses that they're throwing in there. And in, in reality, some of those expenses are, you know, another five to 10% a year that the guardianship is charging uh, effective rate. Uh, you know, they're not charging you a set rate, but they're paying this person, they're paying that person to come do whatever at the house. Uh, and, you know, of course, of course, anytime they get challenged, then they, they go legal and they charge the legal fees versus the estate, you know, so you, you cannibalize your own uh, uh, relative's estate with the legal fees with those guys uh, charging uh, to fight you on everything that they're doing. So, yeah, the guardianships, my experience, what I've seen, you can almost double the expenses uh, of what what's hitting that account. So that, that, uh, that $2 million could get eaten up within less than a decade, you know? Okay. Can you talk a little bit about, um, there is a concept in the guardianship industry as I've been researching it. And they often say that they are judging things the way the person would have judged things when the person had the capacity to make decisions. But if that person uh, liked, say, bonds when they, were, when they were able to make decisions, and now bonds pay nothing, and they keep the person in, a, in an investment that's no longer viable to support them, then how much sense does it make for the guardianship industry to say, I'm doing what that person wanted or what that person, what I know historically that person used to do. Is that a good decision? No, that's a, that's a terrible decision. Um, you, you have to apply what, what the market is. Uh, 
and the circumstances you're in. And, and for instance, right now, in this new era that we're in with this COVID, I'd have a real trouble. I would really say this would be a time to be sitting on a lot of cash simply because not losing might be the play right now for money that's not already invested. If it's already invested, I'd leave it. But if, if you know, the guardianship takes over and they keep doing bonds, like you said, back, say the, when the person was making these decisions, uh, when municipal bonds used to pay 6%, uh, 6% for municipal bonds are generally uh, triple tax free or at least double, which means they don't pay state or federal taxes. 6% was a lot of money. You know, that's now 6% is usury rate. I mean, that's almost like loan shark money, 6%. So yes, it, it, would, it doesn't make any sense for what the guardians using that concept of, of, um, of what that person might've been doing because times change. Everything, everything uh, every year is a, a, a new year, every day, really. You got to look at the market and say, is what was true yesterday still true today for my investment decision? That doesn't mean I sell everything I have, but whatever new money I have, I may not be applying it the same way because of the current environment or, you know, or the, the more medium term environment, say, or a few years versus the longer term. And so, yeah, I, I say I completely disagree with doing what someone did. Num number one, how do they know what they were thinking and their decisions that went into that at that time? They don't know what was in their head. I mean, their family members, we don't always know what's going on in their family members' heads, but we certainly have a better idea of what they're thinking than any guardian that, you know, Johnny come lately comes and tries to decide he knows what's best. So yeah, that's a that's a completely flawed investment philosophy. Okay, do you have um, anything that you'd like to say that your own experience testifying as an expert in a guardianship hearing? Uh, yes, I was asked to testify in a guardianship hearing once and the judge basically said, we're gonna hear what you have to say, but we're not gonna listen to you. And so <laughs> I went up there and, and, and said what I had to say. And, uh, you know, the, basically that looked like the judge was cleaning out her fingernails and, uh, uh, the, the opposing counsel were, were still trying to make arguments about everything. What I said to try to discredit me. And, uh, it was, it was a kangaroo court. It was a joke. Um, the, the, it was obvious that the court had already made up their decisions, whatever their relationship was with, uh, the said guardian was already set in stone. So the rest was just, uh, uh, going through the motions, just, just, uh, like a, uh, rehearsal just so they could say the, the other side was hurt. Okay. Do you but have any I'll suggestions? I'm sorry suggestions for the guardianships for for trying to fix this situation do you think having a hearing in public instead of private would help absolutely i don't remember who said it but nothing good comes out of secrecy 
If it's the truth, it could stand the light. And there's no reason uh, why it can't be public. For instance, divorces, bankruptcies, foreclosures, all public records. Why is this any different? Why is this any different? If it's the public's business to know about all these other things, lawsuits, you know, if, if someone slips on your sidewalk and sues you, it's public record. If they accuse you of anything, it's public record. Why is there a veil of secrecy around this, the state appointing people with power over someone, someone's estate and their money? Why is there a secrecy there? And there's not anywhere else in the legal system, you know? So I, I uh, completely think that nothing good comes out of darkness. If it's legit, it could stand the light and it needs to start standing the light. Thank you. Thank you very much. We really appreciate your being here today.